Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Thank you for your patience in sitting there yesterday, 55 minutes, while I spoke about Richard Weaver. I had nine pages of notes for that. I've got 11 for Benjamin Ingham. <laughs> so no waffle, just go straight to it. I was asked uh, last year what I would consider the Moravians, but you cannot understand the Moravians without understanding Benjamin Ingham. The two go together. So I'm going to speak this afternoon on Benjamin Ingham for a few minutes, and then God willing we'll finish tomorrow by looking at the Moravians. Probably you've never heard of, of Benjamin Ingham. I trust in 55 minutes' time you'll be clued upon who that man was. I personally have come to the conclusion that he, along with George Whitfield, not John Wesley, he, along with George Whitfield, opened this country to the preaching of the gospel and to the evangelical awakening. And yet it's John Wesley who gets all the praise and all the glory. He was a member of the Oxford Holy Club. We've all heard of the Oxford Holy Club. And all that people have heard of is John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. There were 23 of them. What about the other 20? Why does nobody ever talk about the other 20 of the Oxford Holy Club? Well, I'm going to tell you about one man who was very, very influential. The only drawback is that he was born in Osset in Yorkshire. Uh, that's five more minutes on my lecture. He was born in Osset on the 11th of June, 1712. His family had a strong non-conformist background. His distant relatives were thrown out of the Church of England in 1662, the Great Eviction, when uh, Matthew Henry's father was also thrown out of the church because of what he believed. Well, that's the kind of background that he came from. He attended Batley Grammar School. And from there, he then went to Oxford. What for? To train as an Anglican minister. He was a clean living man. And uh, when he went there, he bumped into George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, also James Hervey, John Gambold, and, and John Clayton. These men were serious members of the Oxford Holy Club. What was the Oxford Holy Club? About 23 men. They didn't meet in one big group, but in little cells here and there in different colleges. Every day they covenanted to ask themselves 15 questions to kind of assess where they had been that day in trying to honour the Lord. Uh, and he was a member of, of that. The idea was these 15 questions were to ferret out specific sins so that by the time they left Oxford, they were truly holy men of God. While he was there, he committed himself to read three chapters a day of his Greek New Testament. And uh, that's the kind of thing he did on a regular basis. What is interesting is this. While he was there, he kept a diary. But his diary was written in coded language. Where did he learn the code from? John Wesley. John Wesley's diary was in coded language. The trouble is, scholars have been trying for 200 years to access what does that code mean. <laughs> the great thing about Benjamin Ingham is that when he learned the code from Wesley, he put the code at the front of his journal. In 1969, some student was just stumbling his way through some papers in the Methodist archives in London when he came across the personal diary of Benjamin Ingham and there was the code. That diary with that code has done three things for us. Number one, it's unlocked John Wesley's personal diary. Ah, we now know what you're writing about. Secondly, it tells us what was going on in Oxford at that time. And also it gives us a real insight 
into the struggles of, of the soul of Benjamin Ingham. You see, the people in the Oxford Holy Club agree together at four o'clock every morning. He writes often, I lay in bed till five o'clock to warm my shirt. This business of getting up at five o'clock in the morning, he, he didn't really like. And uh, he tells us in his journal that, uh, that they had hand signals among themselves so that when they're in public, if they thought that one member of the Holy Club was disgracing the honor of the Lord, a little flick of the ear, a little wave of the hand meant don't. Every married man knows those hand signals. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't realize your wife was a member of the spiritual holy club from Oxford. <laughs> I had a great privilege of getting hold of a copy of that, that diary uh, while I was doing this research. It was most interesting to read, and, and I thank God I could actually read it. He had a nickname. The other members of the Oxford Holy Club called him Nathaniel. Why? They said he was a man in whom there was no guile which is a beautiful thing to have said of you. A man called Luke Tyrement was a Methodist historian. He puts it so well. He said, Benjamin Ingham was a conscientious, earnest Pharisee, seeking to be saved by works of righteousness rather than by penitential faith in Christ. And what is interesting is at this stage, all these 23 men knew nothing of justification by faith alone. They were trying to save themselves. He got ordained at the age of 23 in 1735, and uh, his first sermon on the day of his ordination was preaching to prisoners in Oxford Prison. Right. <laughs> Obviously, you've been there. <laughs> after, that, he, after that, he then went home. He went to Osset, and he started a Bible study. He's an unconverted man. He started a Bible study in his parents' home. And when people heard that a man from Oxford, who was an ordained Anglican clergyman, was teaching the Bible in this home, they flocked. And he suddenly found a large crowd of people as he began to explain the scriptures. But in reality, he still was not a saved man. Onto the horizon came a man called James Oglethorpe. Who was James Oglethorpe? He was a British politician. And uh, he was a philanthropist, but also he was the founder of the colony in America called Georgia. He had a real heart, did James Oglethorpe, for people who were in debt, especially in the debtor's prison. The father of John and Charles Wesley could not handle money. And, and their father was often in debt. And James Oglethorpe, on a regular basis, bailed out the Wesleys. I often wondered for many, many years, why did John Wesley, this quintessential Englishman, go to America? Well, it's like this. James Oglethorpe said to John and Charles after they were ordained, would you like to join me in Georgia to look after the spiritual lives of those on the colony? And when the man, ask, the man asking you has bailed you out financially... Uh, and kept your father out of the debtor's prison and enabled you to go through university, you've almost got to say yes, haven't you, really? And that's how John and Charles got on the, the boat to sail out to America. 
Before they went, John Wesley said to Benjamin Ingham, I quote, I dare you to go with me to the Indians. Ingham said, no way, it's not for me. But through a strange set of circumstances and a whole kaleidoscope of emotions, eventually he agreed. And so when John John Wesley and Charles Wesley went out, Benjamin Ingham was on the same boat. These days, a cargo boat going from England to America, going at a decent speed, will probably cross the Atlantic in four to five days. It took them 110 days. Benjamin Ingham, in his journal, tells us just about everybody on the ship was sick. I was sick, he said, for 30 minutes. Mr. Wesley was never sick. That made everyone else sick. (laughs) There were 12 children on the boat, and one of the things that the Oxford Holy Club did was give free reading and writing lessons to people who couldn't read and write. And so while they were on the ship for 110 days, then the Wesleys and Benjamin Ingham were teaching children how to read and how to write. And then they were praying and and fasting and and studying the scriptures and having their their little services and so on. And uh, eventually they arrived in America. Benjamin Ingham did not want to reach the colonists. He left that to the Wesleys. He said, my heart is for the Indians. And so for the the time he was there, three days a week, he taught himself one of the tribal languages of the Indians. And he started to reach out to the Indians. Now we'll look at this when we come to look at the Moravians tomorrow. Because the Moravians were terrific missionaries to the Indians. People like the Mohicans. You know, if you've seen The Last of the Mohicans, that's Hollywood. A real move of God went through the Mohicans, basically through the, the Moravian missionaries, and especially a man called David Zeisberger, whose uh, journal is, is on the back table. So here's this, here's this man from Yorkshire. He has a degree. He's a theologian. He's, he's an Anglican clergyman. He's in America speaking an Indian dialect, evangelizing Indians, but he's not saved. How do you explain that? And suddenly, when he was at a romantic place called Irene, he realized he wasn't saved. And and through calling on God, and almost a little bit like Luther, through teaching the scriptures, he suddenly realized, I'm not saved. And there and then, he committed his heart to Christ. He wrote to his closest friend in the Holy Club, George Whitfield. He said, Dear George, I have come to discover the Savior. From that point on, there was a close bond between George Whitfield and Benjamin Ingham that was never, ever broken. Ingham felt destitute of workers. I can't do this on my own. So he got on the boat and came back to England to try and find converted people to join him to reach out to the Indians of North America. The interesting thing is this. He never returned. Benjamin Ingham was converted 15 months before John Wesley. And uh, I have a personal opinion. These are only my personal opinions. Of, of, of the kind of the core of the Holy Club, 
John Wesley was the last to be converted. And I think that just rankled with him just a little bit. That, that you know, before he saw the light, oh, his brother saw the light, and before his brother, Benjamin, saw the light, and before Benjamin, George Whitfield saw the light. So he was a Johnny-come-lately. Uh, and while John Wesley was still preaching being a Pharisee, Benjamin Ingham was back in England preaching the gospel. When he came back to England, the first thing he did was, was travel to Oxford to see George Whitford and said, George, this is how I got saved. And they fellowshiped together and so on. And then Benjamin went back home to Osset. Six miles outside of Osset, there is a place called Woolly Moor. Or Moor. And while he was there, he felt God saying to him, I have yet many people in this area. Don't go back reach these people and so that's what happened he started as an angry clergyman it opened many doors that maybe a non-conformist would not have he went round all the churches of the area preaching the new birth and you know how it is when you first get converted you're up and down you know like you're like tigger or you're on a bed string just bouncing around you want the whole world to be saved here's this educated man a million miles from Richard Weaver going all around that part of Yorkshire, preaching the gospel. This is now eight months before John Wesley is, is converted. It's amazing how folks say, ah, John Wesley opened the doors. No, no. It was Benjamin Ingham who opened the doors of Yorkshire to the gospel. And then it was a man called John Nelson. Mr. Wesley came a lot later than that. John Wesley eventually returned from from America, and then he had this heartwarming experience on the 24th of May, 1738, which was at a Moravian meeting. That was quite interesting. Three weeks after that, he met up with Benjamin Ingram, and they both set off to Hernhut to meet Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who was the head of, of the Moravian church. And uh, they traveled out there. Wesley said it was the nearest thing to paradise, until it came to the final day. On the final day, they broke bread before Ingham and Wesley went back to England. When it came to breaking of bread, the Moravians said, Mr. Ingham, you can break bread with us because your heart is better than your head. And we know that you do not like the established church, neither do we. Mr. Wesley, you cannot break bread because your head is better than your heart. And you are a zealous churchman, you've told us. So when the bread is passed round, please do not partake. <laughs> Wesley said nothing until they started to travel home and then said to Mr. Ingham, I don't like that Zinzendorf. <laughs> In respect to that, Wesley could not get the Moravians out of his system. It was in a Moravian meeting he heard, you mean, that preface being read to, to Luther's epistle. And uh, he'd gone to Hernhood and said it was the nearest thing to paradise and then been slapped round the face. When he came back, if you wanted to find out really what was going, in our, going on in our country, you went to a meeting in London in Fetter Lane. And if you look on the board at the back, you will see a plaque which marks a building where, where Fetter Lane uh, Moravian meeting used to meet. And, and a large gathering of people 
kind of used to meet there. And if you were ordained, I mean, authority does come in, and I'm only speaking about the days in which these people were living. You know, you've got ordained Anglican clergymen who've studied at Oxford, who've been abroad. It kind of cuts some ice with some people. And so very quickly, people like Benjamin Ingham and John Wesley began to have authority in the Fetter Lane meeting. But he really didn't like the Moravians at heart. And after a while, tensions came between John Wesley and the Moravians. Prior to that, at one of their meetings, on New Year's Day, John Wesley admits, and Benjamin Ingham, and George Whitfield, for they were all there, we went to worship God at the beginning of the new year, and as we worshipped, the Spirit of God came down, and when we came out of the meeting, we did, know not, we did not know what year it was. Such was the presence of God. But not long after that, there was a church meeting. And one motion at the church meeting was to vote John Wesley out of the Fetter Lane meeting. And it was carried. Imagine being voted out of a church. He took the huff. 75 people joined him. 25 men and 50 women. And it's kind of, oh, that's the Moravians. That's how they treat me. Well, we'll see what I can do. And, and from that point on, really, his relationship with the Moravians radically deteriorated. Benjamin Ingham desperately tried to mediate, to say, come on, we'll save people. This has to stop. But, but he failed. Ingham then came back to Osset in Yorkshire and just carried on preaching. But on the 6th of June, 1739, there was a meeting of the Diocese of York to discuss this new convert who's just come back from America. Who was that man? Benjamin Ingham. And the Church of England Diocese of York banned Benjamin Ingham from ever entering any of their pulpits. They said he was mad and demon-possessed and that what he preaches is dangerous. John Wesley faced that a little later on, but Ingham faced it first there, and the meeting took place in Wakefield. The vicar of Jewsby was the biggest thorn in his side. So what do you do when that happens? You just go around preaching in graveyards, village greens, on the street, on the moors. Wherever he preached, he led people to Christ. Within a couple of years, Benjamin Ingham had 40 societies all around that part of Yorkshire, not of people he'd stolen, but of people he'd led to faith in Christ. Forty societies. And he went round on a monthly basis, round these forty societies. He said, when I started off, when I'd done a month tour, I had communicated to over 2,000 people that I'd led to the Lord. And so it was kind of, you know, the first Monday of the month, well, he'll always be in Halifax. And if you've got a friend who's seeking, why not bring him along to the meeting because Benjamin will be here. He'll explain the gospel. And that's how it worked. And he was just doing that week after week after week. Onto the scene came a man called John Nelson. John Nelson came from a place called Burstall. He was a stonemason who went down to London to build a little, little place. You may have heard of it, Somerset House. And uh, he went down there as a stonemason. And while he was there, he thought he would sample the religious fairs of London. 
And so he listened to the dissenters and the Catholics and the Quakers and the Anglicans. None of them did anything for him. But one day he heard a little Englishman preaching with his Anglican gowns on. Who was that man? It was John Wesley. And there and then John Nelson was born again of the Spirit of God and was converted. Wesley was delighted. He said to him, brother, you need to go back home to Yorkshire. Never mind being a stonemason. You be a preacher of the kingdom of God. And you work with living stones. And so Nelson stopped being a stonemason. Somerset House was finished. And he came back to Yorkshire to evangelize. What a contrast. An Oxford graduate who speaks the language of the Mohicans. And a stonemason from Bristol. When he came up. Benjamin Ingham welcomed him with open arms and said, Brother, I acknowledge your preaching, I acknowledge your ministry, and you can preach in all of my societies. I'm happy for you to come and preach. They're not your societies, but I've told my people, if you turn up, you can preach. John Nelson tells us in his writings, every week as he preached, between nine or ten people were added to the kingdom of God. But there was a problem. What did he do with those converts? John Nelson was a convert of John Wesley, and John Wesley was an Anglican. He put his converts back into the Anglican church. Benjamin wasn't too pleased. Hang on a minute. Benjamin was greatly influenced by the Moravians. The Moravians saw the Anglican church as the whore in Revelation. John, why are you putting your converts into the arms of a whore? Put them into our societies where there is life. So there was a little bit of tension going on. John Nelson certainly was not sold on the Moravians because John Wesley had been snubbed by the Moravians. But Benjamin Ingham warmed to the Moravians. And so if you think church politics is something new and sort of... You know, second degree enemies. If you're a friend of my enemy, I'm not a friend of you. That was going on in those days. And so suddenly we find this great work flourishing in Yorkshire. Ah, it's beginning to fracture now because of people's opinions about the Moravians. We'll deal with the Moravians tomorrow, but they'd come to this country and they were looking for a post in the north of England. They were established in London. They were doing a work in Bristol, but they wanted to go north, uh, and they were looking for an opening. By now, Benjamin Ingham was worn out. He said, I can't run all these societies. It's tiring me. The Moravians said, hand them over to us. We'll look after them. You do the preaching. We'll run them. We'll sort out the administration. So that is what happened. Benjamin Ingham virtually handed over all that he'd done into the hands of the Moravians. Because the Moravians were now running the show, and the Moravians really didn't like John Wesley, and John Wesley had endorsed John Nelson, the Moravians said, oh, by the way, now that we're in charge of these societies, John Nelson is not preaching for us. John Nelson said, why? I haven't changed. So they began to wrangle and sort of argue over these things. 
He said, I got my ordination from God, not, the, from, not from the Moravians, so who are the Moravians to tell me not to preach? Benjamin Ingham said, well, how about just refraining for a month until we discuss it? He said, I'll refrain for a month if you tell the devil to refrain for a month from his work. It kind of got pretty nasty. In the end, they said to him, that's it. You are not allowed in any of our societies. What was John Nelson's uh, reply? He called the Moravians, are you ready for it? Fasten your seatbelts. Pigs out of a German wood. That's what you are, pigs. <laughs> the Moravians accused uh, John Nelson not of uh, just crude language, but also of, uh, of false doctrine. Uh, and from that point on, things got from bad to worse. In fact, when John Wesley actually came to that area, to Burstall, to preach, even though Benjamin Ingham was there, he wouldn't cross the road to hear him preach. Isn't it amazing? This is just four years after John Wesley had said, Benjamin, I dare you, come to preach to the Indians. And after four years, they were not speaking. In that area, there was a very well-to-do man called the seventh Earl of Hastings. He had four girls. The youngest was called Margaret. But these four girls, even though they were well-to-do, they went to hear Benjamin Ingham preach. And they said, Father, it's wonderful preaching. He's so gentle, but he's so powerful. Could you invite him to our home, to Ledston Hall, and we'll invite friends and family, you know, a little bit like Pride and Prejudice, and you, you invite this man to come and preach. So Benjamin Ingham went into the Hastings home and he preached the gospel. Margaret, the youngest, was converted there and then. Now, her father, it was his second marriage. He had a son from the first marriage. And that son, through the first marriage, her stepbrother, was related to a young lady called Selina. She was called the Countess of Huntingdon. And Margaret said, we've had a wonderful time with this Yorkshire preacher. Why don't you invite him down to Donington Park? Uh, and you do what we've just done. And so Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, said to Benjamin Ingham, I wonder if you'd come and do one of your meetings in our, in our home, some home in the West Wing. And... Uh, <laughs> Benjamin Ingham went down. He said he felt so out of his depth with these rich and cultured people. Well, if he said that as an Oxford man, pity help folk like us. Who led Selina, the Countess of Huntington, to the Lord? Benjamin Ingham. And think of the great influence she was for the gospel. He then fell in love with Margaret the girl he led to the Lord at Ledston Hall. He married her. The scandal it caused. I quote Lady Mary Wardley Montagu. The news I hear from London is that Lady Margaret Hastings has deposed of herself to a poor, wandering Methodist preacher. Oh dear. <laughs> he married into money. But it did not spoil him. 
I'll come to that in a moment. Here is Benjamin Ingham. He's now 31. He's married the daughter of the 7th Earl of Hastings. The Methodists really don't want much to do with him. Why? Because of all the trouble. The Anglican Church want nothing to do with him. So what happens? He throws himself into the work of the Moravian Church because they're the only people who will back him. But there's things about the Moravians that he doesn't really like. But let's be honest, all of us find ourselves working in situations. We don't like certain things, but we bite our tongue for the sake of the gospel. So he said, I'll run with these, but I'm not totally happy with these things. So he moves to Aberford, which is where he died, and he spends his time going to Lancashire, Yorkshire, Derbyshire, Cumbria, what we would call Westmoreland in those days, just, just preaching the gospel. And every now and then he goes down to London to join his friend George Whitfield. He bumps into a man in Haworth called William Grimshaw. Grimshaw and Ingham become great friends. You know this illustration, but this is the context of the illustration. William Grimshaw invited George Whitfield to preach in Haworth. When Benjamin Ingham heard his friend was going to Haworth, he turned up with his wife and with the Countess of Huntington. Wow. If thought were taking selfies in those days, <laughs> you know, what a picture that would be. The place was filled with thousands of people in Haworth. George Whitford got up to preach. What was his text? It is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. Between announcing that text and uttering his first word, a person dropped down dead in the congregation. They paused while they carried the man out. You know how it is these days? The family would have liked that for you to carry on. So he was taken out and they carried on. So George Whitfield stood up again and said, I go back to my text. It is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. A person stood right next to his wife and Selina, Countess of Huntington, likewise dropped dead. You can imagine the hush on the crowd. <laughs> William Grimshaw turned and said to Whitfield, Brother Whitfield, you stand among the dead and dying, and immortal soul, another immortal soul has been called into eternity. The destroying angel is passing over this congregation. I urge you, cry aloud and spare not. So that's the kind of company that Benjamin Ingram, Ingram kept. Now, my wife and I have been going round the, the, the sort of the Benjamin Ingham trail. There is no trail. <coughs> But we've been going around different sites and so on. You know how it is? Nice little flask in the car. Some, some nice chocolate things you indulge in. We have sort of central heating in our car, you know, kind of things like that. And, and if it's really, really wet, I can go home and have a bath. Think of how cold it's been this afternoon. This man very rarely traveled by a horse. Primarily, he walked around all these counties on foot. Whatever the weather... If he's promised to be in Halifax on the first Monday of the month, he'll be in Halifax. If he said, oh, by the way, I'll be in, in, in Derbyshire by the end of the month on that day, he's got to be there. This man walked miles in wet clothes 
no antibiotics, generally speaking, no spare clothes in which to change, humping around a couple of books and his Bible, we're told he never preached from notes in the sense of he read his sermons, he just preached from the word of God. Can you think of what this man went through? Wow. And by the way, can you think of the smell? <laughs> of what he must have smelt like, you know, trekking over the moors and coming into a farmhouse with a big fire burning away, taking off his dripping wet coat uh, and trying to preach Christ. I tell you, it's one thing going around the, uh, the sort of Ingham Trail with my wife in a nice car. I take my hat off to this man. What a warrior for the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout all this, he faced perpetual persecution from the church. And, and, and the biggest persecutors, and I don't get any joy in saying this, was the Church of England. In my first lecture five years ago, do you remember that? John Angel James, who was a minister of Carr's Lane Congregational Church in Birmingham, which was then followed by R.W. Dale, he was one of the founders of the Evangelical Alliance. He caused an uproar in his day when he said the biggest hindrance to the gospel in this country is the Church of England. Now, when you've got 2,000 people in your congregation, you have sort of a bit of ballast to say that. If I said that, for God, look at him, some frustrating nonconformist. Yeah. But, but how interesting, this man who is an ordained Anglican clergyman preaching the gospel as laid out in the 39 articles is almost vilified by the Anglican church which ordained him. And, and the worst treatment he ever received, and I, I, I'm ashamed about this, he received it in Cone in Lancashire. And by the way, it's where John Wesley received his harshest treatment. Tipping him off the pulpit and dragging him through the streets with his hair. Another occasion, they dragged him through the street with his feet, with his head just banging on the road. What an incredible man he was. When George Whitfield came back into the country after being in America for four years, he was horrified at the gulf between Benjamin Ingham and John Wesley. He said, brothers, this should not be. This should not be. And he tried desperately to get them both to come together. And I have to say, and if you can prove me wrong, I, I would happily acknowledge it and, and say I was wrong. But all the evidence of history points to the fact that every time Benjamin Ingham said, John, we have to talk about this, John said no. No. In fact, the final opportunity was when George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley were preaching in Newcastle, which is just up the road from Aberford, and, and John and, and Benjamin Ingham wrote to George and said, George, when you come down to London, bring John and Charles with you. Our house is open. I want to meet you. And John said, there is no way I'm going to his house. And forever, the door was closed. While this was carrying on, with that pain in his heart, he was still preaching. He said to the Countess of Huntington in 1750 that on a monthly circuit I could reach 60,000 people. And in the 1750s he had now built up his societies to 80. So while they were handled by the Moravians, 
he was doing the bulk of the preaching and the bulk of the evangelizing. They were kind of organizing these societies into stronger churches. The Countess of Huntington said, Mr. Ingham is still preaching Christ crucified with wonderful success and inexpressible benefit to the souls of many. Nicholas von Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravian Church, came to this country. And uh, we'll deal with him tomorrow. He's a most interesting character. He, uh, he wanted to sort of go up north to see how things were. And as he came north, he was primarily going to, to, to York. When he came to Leeds, he, uh, he stood on a hill which he called Lamb's Hill. And he said, I believe this is where the Moravians should have their northern headquarters. Uh, and today, if you go to Fullneck, and there's some pictures of Fullneck at the back, all these years later, sure enough, there is a Moravian centre at Fullneck, just on the outskirts of Leeds and of Bradford. By this time, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, guess what he's calling himself? Papa Zinzendorf. Saying to his members, you know, well, yeah, I am Nicholas, but I am your papa. Oh. Suddenly, you have Benjamin Ingham going, wait a minute. The Methodists have turned their back on me. The Anglicans have turned their back on me. I'm now working with people with a man who now calls himself Papa Zinzendorf. And also, he starts saying, I think we should have nothing to do with Methodists. In fact, how about this? Papa Zinzendorf took out an article in the paper, I quote, The Moravians have no connection whatsoever with Methodism and John Wesley. End of quote. Oh, Ingham thinks this is going a little bit too far and I don't like it. But there was a problem. So what's the problem? When Zinzendorf wanted to build a headquarters for the Moravians in the north of England, he had no money. Who had money? Benjamin Ingham. He doesn't use the money. You know, I think I have a horse and carriage to ride around Yorkshire preaching. No, he carries on walking, living as he lived before, but he starts to use that money to invest into the kingdom of God. So he gave the Moravians the bulk of the money to purchase the land to buy Fulnick, which is still there. When you've invested into something and you want to pull out of it, you want your money. So he said to Mr. Zinzendorf, uh, I'm quitting you. I just can't take the way you're going. I'd like my money back. He said, we have none. He said, but I need it. They came to an agreement that he would have £30 rent every year. Uh, and that's all. Well, what could he do? And I have to say, fair credit to Benjamin Ingham. He could have been very insistent and got very legal about this, going, that is my money. He said, I do not want to damage the work that God is doing. So you keep it, but just pay me £30 a year for, for the rent of it. Having left the Moravians, having been disowned by the Methodists, having been persecuted by the Anglicans, what's he going to do? He turns to his 80 societies and says, folks, we're on our own. 
We're on our own. The Moravians are doing their own thing now, so we've got to make it work ourselves. There were a handful of people who became very significant. One was a man called James Allen. Another was a man called Christopher Batty. He gave these men more and more responsibility. James Allen and Christopher Batty suddenly heard of something going on in the north. We better find out what it is. What had they heard? There was a man in Scotland called John Glass. John Glass had just been put out of the Church of Scotland because of his beliefs. He had a son-in-law, a man who married his daughter, called John Sandyman. Originally, John Glass was called the father of the Glassites, but the Glassites then became the Sandymanians. You've heard of the Sandymanians. How on earth do I explain Sandymanianism? That's a paper in and of itself for 2020. In a sentence, in a sentence, thank you, Roger, for volunteering to speak on Sandymanianism. <laughs> Sandymanianism, in a quick sentence, is cold Calvinism. Now, some quip from an Arminian would say, well, Calvinism is cold anyway. But uh, Sandymanianism is, is Calvinism gone berserk. And it's an intellectual thing. Your heart isn't really involved. No Sandymanian could sing, mine, 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 I know thou art mine, saviour, dear saviour. Oof, that's too emotional. It's all kind of cerebral Christianity. These two men went up to, to, to Scotland, were blown away by Sandymanianism. It came south of the border. It even influenced a man like Christmas Evans. Christmas Evans said, Sandymanianism put put a mantle of frost around my heart and I lost the joy of the Lord for several years until one day I was climbing Cata Idris and suddenly the Spirit of God melted my heart and I threw off that cold Calvinism. Here is Benjamin Ingham struggling to keep his eight societies going. These two men from his ranks come back and say, Mr. Ingham, oh, we've got to embrace this. Because they were young, they had the young people of the societies on their side. And so a vote was taken. Do we go down this road or do we not? In one night, Benjamin Ingham lost 63 societies. And all that he'd worked for slipped away into the hands of some young upstarts who were mesmerized by Sandemanianism. If you go to Hawes, if you've ever been to Hawes, you go up the main street of Hawes, Hawes is full of lots of interesting bits of history. On the left-hand side, you'll find a shop, and over the shop it says Elijah Allen. The Allen family is connected to James Allen. And if you go up to the Hall's cheesery, uh, cheese-making factory, just go to the top of the road. There is a little building there. You would never know it was a Sandemanian chapel. That's where James Allen used to beat. 
About six weeks ago, I just went there again, stood on the grave of James Allen and said, You naughty little Sandemanian. <laughs> James Allen and Christopher Batty and a lot of other zealous young people who didn't realize the implications of what they were doing wrecked a man's life work. And very quickly, their chapels disintegrated and people like James Allen were just pastoring 10 or 11 people. People got so disillusioned. This is what Benjamin Ingham said when all this happened. I quote from his writings. I am lost. I am lost. What did John Wesley do when he heard about all this? Would you like to hear what John Wesley said? I went to Tadcaster yesterday. Here, Mr. Ingham had once a far larger society than ours, but now it has shrunk to nothing. Ours is constantly increasing. I said, Mr. Wesley, you unsanctified little Methodist. <laughs> How dare you say that? He almost gloated in what had happened to all the assemblies founded by Benjamin Ingham. If you go to Clapham, quite near to Ingleton in, in, in the Yorkshire Dales, I could take you to a farm called Thin Oaks. The barn of Thin Oaks Farm used to be the chapel of one of the Ingamite assemblies. And one of the families that used to meet there was the Faraday family. And the father of Michael Faraday used to worship there. And so did Michael Faraday. And it's quite moving to think, wow, a man who finished up at the top of his scientific tree in this country was a man who embraced the gospel. But sadly, when the split came in the Ingamites, his family went down the road of Sandemanianism, and Michael Faraday was a Sandemanian who finished his days in London, of course, and is buried in Highgate Cemetery. Not long after this, Mrs. Benjamin Ingham died, and four years later, Benjamin Ingham himself died, a totally broken man. When he died, this is the notice that appeared in the Leeds Intelligence. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> I did pray before I gave this lecture, said, Lord, forgive me for going to say this. <laughs> Here's what the Leeds Intelligence said. On Wednesday, died at his house, Aberford, Reverend Mr. Ingham, a learned and excellent Christian. And that's it. Eight years ago, I drove over to Aberford, to the church where Benjamin Ingham died and was buried. And the church was open, and there was a man up a ladder in the bell tower. 
So I said, excuse me, is anyone up there? He said, yes, there's me, I'm coming down. So he came down the ladder and I said, this is a strange question, maybe you've never been asked it before. I said, but I know that Benjamin Ingham died around here, I presume he's buried here. He said, it's strange you should ask. He said, in February 2007, we opened the vault of this church. He said, we're doing some repair work to the church. We opened the vault and there were four graves, in the four coffins in the vault. He said, two of them was of Benjamin Ingham and his wife. He said, the lid of his wife's coffin had, had collapsed slightly and it was a red silk lining, but on top of the coffin was the family coat of arms. I said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, yes, certainly. I said, can you tell me why there is nothing in your church to this man? He said, I just can't tell you why. I said, I just want you to get your vicar to put something up to say, this is a man who opened the north of England to the gospel. Why are you not proud of it? Just before coming here, I got in contact again with the church to say, oh, by the way, many years ago, I asked you about this plaque. Is there anything? Oh, nothing at all. Nothing at all. So that's Benjamin Ingham. But we haven't finished. Just four things to say in closing. What can we say about Benjamin Ingham? And I've left so much out, but you've got the fair idea of what he's about. What are the four things I want to say? The first is this, the deviousness of God's people. We sing the hymns of Nicholas von Zinzendorf. We also sing the hymns of James Allen. Believe it or not, James Allen wrote some lovely hymns, this man who kind of split all the assemblies. We also sing some hymns written by John Wesley, for John did write some hymns. These men were all hymn writers, and were still singing their hymns. But these men were responsible for wrecking the life of another man. And you kind of read books, and, and, and we elevate people, and Please don't get me wrong, I have great admiration for what people have done in the past. But also, let's also admit the truth. That John Wesley's attitude towards Benjamin Ingham was despicable. And what you did to your brother was not good. And sad to say, the history of the Christian church is littered with people who have been wrecked by decent people who haven't realized the implications of what they were doing in other people's lives. And it's a warning to all of us. Secondly, it also illustrates to me the brokenness of the church. Have you thought about this? If George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, John Nelson, Benjamin Ingham, and the Moravians had worked together, the impact on this country would have been colossal. But instead... Within years, they're all falling out with each other. People say, well, it always takes two to tango. Not always. Sometimes it's very difficult when people keep picking fights with you to know what to do. And, and while I am no fan of churches together, I mean, my kind of quotation is, all cats are grey in the dark.
Just being together in the dark means absolutely nothing. But these men were gospel men. And I say, John, Charles, George, Benjamin, John, Nicholas, Papa, whatever you want to be called, why couldn't you work together for the sake of the gospel? The third thing is what I've called the importance of eternity. I have stacks of photographs of pictures that say this. John Wesley slept here. John Wesley preached here. John Wesley opened this church. I have not got one photograph of any plaque that I know is in the country to Benjamin Ingham. Why is that? Who cares where John Wesley slept? What about a man who planted 80 societies and was preaching to 50, 60,000 people a month and sort of schooling them in the things of God? No record at all. Thank God at the end of the age, the Bible says, God will wipe away all tears and wrongs will be righted. And then finally, the mystery of life. I struggle to know, and I haven't got any answers. I'm not looking for answers. I sometimes struggle to know why God allows good men like Benjamin Ingham to suffer so. But the Bible's full of it, isn't it? You look at Jeremiah, this, this character who's behind me on this painting. Boy, did he suffer. Why? It was Flavel who has a powerful description of God's providence. He said, God's providence is like Hebrew, best read backwards. And until we get to glory and we read God's providence backwards, we have to say with Horatio Spofford, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. I'll finish with a child's prayer. Lord, make all the bad people good and all the good people nice. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to say thank you for Benjamin Ingham. Father, you know we're not praying for the dead. But I thank you for people like him and thousands more who are unknown to us, but who spent their lives for the sake of the gospel. Father, the pain that man had in his heart must have been unbelievable, but he carried on for you. And Father, we ask and pray as we look back into history, may we not just be entertained by it, but may we learn mega lessons from it. While we may not always see eye to eye with everybody, we thank the Lord that they're preaching the gospel. And Father, if truth were known, as I look across this auditorium of people, what an eclectic gathering of people we are. But we're here because of the Lord Jesus. Father, what a lovely son your son is. And to think that you so love the world, you gave us your son to be our savior. And Father, we are conscious life is too short to be knocking chunks out of each other. We ask and pray, may we pray for one another. May we build one another up 
and may we never lose sight of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for John Wesley, George Whitfield, all these characters. But most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. He is unique. And in his name, we say thank you. Amen.